Hi everyone, let's talk Zionism. Not that we haven't been, but now we're really going to. If I had to pick a topic that my birthright participants are most confused about on my Israel trips, I would say it's Zionism. What it is, what's the idea, what's the movement all about, all that stuff. Especially these days, when so much on campus and in social media and in the Bay Area and in the progressive movement in general, so much is anti-Zionist. And it gets really confusing, what are we talking about when we're talking about Zionism? So I'll do what I usually do, cram reams of books into 15-minute podcast episodes. And I mean, we'll be talking about Zionism throughout the season on Modern Israel, so this won't be our only chance. So don't worry, let's get to it. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so if I had to sum it up, and I mean I do, because that's the point of the podcast, but if I had to sum it up, I would say that Zionism provided an innovative solution to two separate problems both of which we've talked about. One problem was in Eastern Europe, where the Jews were under severe physical threat. The early Zionist thinkers there came to the conclusion that only in their ancient homeland could the Jewish people be safe from harm. The other problem was Western Europe, where the Jews weren't so much under physical threat as spiritual. Assimilation and anti-Semitism meant that Jews weren't able to express their Jewishness, so the threat was that in a couple generations there wouldn't be any Jews left they would all have assimilated into the majority society. For the Zionist leaders in the second half of the 1800s, the creation of the Jewish homeland in the Promised Land would ensure the survival of the Jewish people, both physically, since they wouldn't be killed, and spiritually, since they wouldn't have to assimilate if the majority culture was Jewish. This was a movement of Jewish self-determination, or sometimes we call it Jewish nationalism, and of Jewish survival. Because what so often gets overlooked is that these Zionist thinkers they were right. More than 50 years before the Holocaust, writers like Leon Pinsker and Moses Hess and Theodore Herzl correctly predicted that at some point soon, Europe would destroy the Jewish people, physically and spiritually. And only if we had our own homeland would we survive. But there's another piece to this. Zionism was also an effort to ensure not just our survival, but also that we would create a new kind of Jew. In contrast to what the early Zionists saw of the huddled, impoverished, persecuted Jewish masses of the East, or the entitled, assimilationist Jews of the West, the Zionists imagined that a new kind of Jew would emerge in this Jewish homeland. He, and she, would be strong, physically fit, proud, educated, socialist, connected to the land of the Torah. And not only that, but the creation of a Jewish state would bring enormous benefits, not just to the Jews, but also to the world. Theodore Herzl thought that the Jewish state would destroy anti-Semitism, since there wouldn't be a need for it anymore. The Arabs living in Palestine would embrace it, because they would benefit from what a modern state and a modern economy would bring to them. Herzl wrote, The world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness. And whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of humanity. Like any historic movement, there were winners and there were some losers, and there were lots of critics, and things that didn't go as planned and unintended consequences. Zionism has taken on new and different forms over the last century, a constantly evolving movement and idea. 
Ultimately, though, these early Zionists inspired the Jewish people to rebuild themselves and their ancient homeland and to create an enormously successful, thriving, prosperous Jewish democracy out of the sands of the Middle East. After 2,000 years in exile, the Jewish people came home. Here in the Bay Area, we have one of the great national treasures of America. Not Carl the Fog, although the fog is great. I'm talking about redwood trees. And I want you to picture one of these redwood trees. Hundreds of feet tall, scores of branches, tens of thousands of leaves, up to 2,000 years old. Nice coincidence there. Dozens of feet thick. That tree is Zionism. So let me explain. You have the main trunk of the tree which is this notion of a Jewish renaissance that begins with Jewish self-determination in the ancient homeland. Sometimes we call this Jewish nationalism, but it's part of a bigger effort to remake and reinvigorate the Jewish people and Judaism. This is the classic, original Zionist message. Everything about the tree, from its roots to its branches, feeds into this central trunk, the central idea of Zionism as a renaissance movement of the Jewish people to reestablish a Jewish nation in what is their historical homeland in Israel. If you believe in this fundamental message of Jewish self-determination, congratulations, you are a Zionist. Everything else spins off from this central idea. As for the tree's roots, we've talked about them in the last two episodes, the situation of the Jews in Western and Eastern Europe during the 1800s. Later on, another root system will be added from the Jews of the Middle East and North Africa, but that's for a later episode. Like any movement and any tree, our Zionist tree has a number of branches sticking out in all directions. Each branch represents a different stream of Zionism, all feeding back into the central trunk of Jewish self-determination. Each branch has its own ecosystem of a main motivating ideology, smaller offshoot branches of different ideas and concepts, the leaves representing that movement's individual leaders and heroes. So, if the main trunk is Zionism, then you have branches for, for example, political Zionism, or cultural Zionism, or religious Zionism, or labor Zionism, or revisionist Zionism, or liberal Zionism. These days, there's even post-Zionism. Some of these Zionisms work well with each other, and some don't. It's possible for you to sit on one of these branches, but not the others, or to sit on a couple of branches at the same time. Whichever branch you are on, you're still being supported together with your friends on other branches by the tree trunk of Jewish self-determination. And if you don't like one of the branches, that's okay. You don't need to cut down the whole tree. You don't have to reject Zionism because you disagree with parts of it. By the way, the term Zionism came about in 1890. It was coined by the Jewish writer Nathan Birnbaum, a longtime promoter of these ideas. Zion comes from the Hebrew Bible as a reference to Jerusalem and often specifically the Jewish longing to return to their homeland. Geographically, Zion is the hill where the city built by King David stood. It's still there as an archaeological site and sometimes on birthright trips we visit the top of the hill where the tomb of King David is located, so you might have actually been to the real original Zion. But ultimately, we can't paint Zionism with one large brush. It's a massive ecosystem. And by the 1890s, two big branches had emerged. Political Zionism, 
led by Theodor Herzl, and cultural Zionism, led by a man named Ahad Ha'am. They fought bitterly over the direction of the Zionist movement in the way that, like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, wrestled with each other over the nature of American democracy. But that's the tree. That's the Zionist tree. And hopefully you have that image in, in your mind as we go forward. But let's start with one of the branches. Let's start with Theodore Herzl and the political Zionism branch. As we discussed last episode, Herzl started out as an assimilationist, believing, like many Jews in Western Europe, that they had achieved security and acceptance by their fellow French, German, and Austrian neighbors. But numerous incidents, most especially the Dreyfus Affair in France in the 1890s, convinced Herzl that anti-Semitism was still the great enemy, and that in order to ensure their survival as a people, the Jews would have to establish their own homeland. Now, the Zionist thinkers, they were all in agreement on this point. But for Herzl, and this is what made him stand out from other advocates of Zionism at this time, Herzl saw this whole movement through the lens of politics. Herzl thought that although anti-Semitism sometimes came across as social or religious, it was actually political. In his groundbreaking book called The Jewish State, he wrote that this nexus of anti-Semitism and Zionism is, quote, a national question, which can only be solved by making it a political world question to be discussed and settled by the civilized nations of the world in council, end quote. In other words, what he wanted was an internationally recognized country for the Jews, in the same way that Germany or France or Austria or any other country was internationally recognized and, crucially, it was sovereign. He also believed that the creation of a Jewish state would end anti-Semitism. Since there wouldn't be any Jews left in Europe, therefore eliminating what he saw as the central political element of anti-Semitism, there wouldn't be a need for anti-Semitism anymore, and it would disappear. The Jews are out of sight. They're out of mind. We don't have to hate them. Herzl had a whole two-part plan for this, as outlined in his book, The Jewish State. So first thing, there will be the creation of an organization called the Society of Jews. I love this, the Society of Jews. It's like so simple and basic. The Society of Jews is going to represent the Jewish people of Europe as a national movement, since the Jews are both in distress and they don't actually have their own country. The society is going to lay the diplomatic and legal groundwork with the European nations as a kind of state-forming committee. And it's also going to take a poll of the Jews to find out if they really want to go to the Promised Land. We're going to find out later that not everyone was really excited about this. But once the decision is made, and of course Herzl assumes that the decision is made, the society is going to plan out things like migration and settlement, government and legislation, and they're going to investigate what kinds of natural resources and economic opportunities might be available in this new country. The second part of the plan was the creation of the Jewish Company, another really great name. I just love for the simplicity. It's going to be kind of a joint stock company that's going to help the Jews of Europe liquidate their assets into cash when they leave for the Jewish homeland. In the new state, the Jewish Company would facilitate the creation of an economy. It's going to purchase land, construct buildings, develop an entire system of skilled and unskilled labor to ensure that everyone will contribute productively to society. The Jewish company will be in the business of trade and manufacturing, industry, promotion, raising money, basically all the things you need for a full-fledged economy, while ensuring that the nations of Europe would also benefit from outward Jewish migration. 
Herzl laid out a whole scheme for how this new nation was going to look. It's really impressive. I mean, if you actually sit and read The Jewish State, which is a short book, you can do it. Uh, it's fascinating the way that he really lays out all the details for how this country and this society is going to be developed. He talked about drafting a modern constitution. His preference was for either a democratic monarchy or an aristocratic republic. The monarchy was the best form of government, he felt, because democracy was too extreme. Democracy created idle discussion, and it created what he called that objectionable class of men, professional politicians. He really wanted to reinstate the ancient Jewish monarchy, but felt that too much time had passed, which, yeah, because it's been a few thousand years. So he settled for having an aristocratic republic in which the upper strata of society would rule, but no member of the Jewish state would be oppressed. In fact, politics would be meritorious. Although any objections to this plan, he pointed out, would be immediately suppressed by the society. As for the language of this Jewish state, Herzl wasn't sure what it would be, but he was adamant that it wouldn't be Hebrew. Useless, he declared Hebrew. Who amongst us has sufficient acquaintance with Hebrew to ask for a railway ticket that language? Such a thing cannot be done. And just to show you that even the great heroes of Judaism are not infallible, Ani rotze kartis rakevet. I want a railway ticket. Every immigrant, he said, will simply use the language that they used back in Europe so that they will never forget from where they came. And whichever language ultimately turns out to be the most used and the most useful, that will be the national tongue. As for the idea of a theocracy, in which Judaism would be bound up with the administration of the state, Herzl rejected that idea too. We shall keep our priests within the confines of their temples in the same way as we shall keep our professional army within the confines of their barracks, he said. There will be freedom of religion because we learn toleration from having been subjected to anti-Semitism in Europe. And all who come to live in this new state will enjoy full legal equality. And as for a flag, Herzl said, well, we need one. He envisioned a white flag with seven gold stars white to represent the pure new life of the Jews in their new state, and the golden stars to represent the seven golden hours of the workday. And on and on Herzl went, outlining even things like extradition treaties for Jewish criminals, interim legislation while the state was being established, the distribution of land and property rights. He had this whole endeavor planned out to a T, this whole huge vision for what the Jewish state was going to be. But he forgot something major. He forgot to make the Jewish state Jewish. What is so interesting about Herzl, at least I think so, is just how much he got wrong. I mean, from the flag, to the language, to the constitution, so much of his vision for the Jewish state, he didn't end up getting right. But in the actual creation of the Jewish state, that he got right. And as the 19th century came to a close, Herzl was the undisputed leader of the Zionist movement in Europe. He wouldn't lead the movement for too long. In July of 1904, suffering from heart problems, he died in Austria. The day before, knowing his end was near, he said, I gave my heart's blood for my people. 
He asked to be buried next to his father in a cemetery in Vienna until such time that the Jewish people would be able to take his remains to Israel. They did in 1949, reburying him on top of Mount Herzl with a view of the city of Jerusalem. It was an honor for what he had achieved as the founder of the Zionist movement, as the first leader to put the Jewish people on this path towards re-establishing their own state in their ancient homeland. But he had this huge blind spot in not addressing the Jewish nature of this future Jewish state, and so other Zionist thinkers stepped in to fill the gap and challenged his notion of political Zionism. They argued that it wasn't enough to just have a state with Jews in it. We needed a state that would serve as the spiritual center of Judaism, embodying secular Jewish values, culture, history, and traditions. So it's time to add another branch to our Zionist tree, cultural Zionism, led by an extraordinary thinker named Ahad Ha'am. That's for next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then.